This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Enjoy! Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. For July 14th, 2022, it's the lowest approval rating edition. I'm David Plotz in Washington, D.C., back from Vermont, sad, sadly, sadly back from Vermont. I am joined, as per usual, by John Dickerson of CBS News. Hello, John from New York. Hello, David. And Emily is uh, yawn and beyond. I don't even know where she is on vacation. I hope relaxing, deservedly relaxing somewhere. And we have a special guest. I think his first, his debut hosting the GabFest, I believe. Not certainly on his debut appearance. Mark Leibovich of The Atlantic author of Thank You for Your Servitude, fantastic new book that came out this week about Trump's lackeys, minions, and lickspittles that we're going to be talking about. Mark, welcome to the GabFest. Hello. So good to be here, David, John. Happy to be here in any capacity. I can say, I've always been considered myself a friend of the GabFest, occasional visitor, but uh, this is a whole new capacity, so it's an honor. This week on the GabFest, why is President Joe Biden so unpopular and could it get even worse for him? Then we will talk to Mark about his darkly comic new book and about the recent January 6th committee revelations. Then Herschel Walker knows almost nothing about anything, exaggerates lies and misleads, has a worrisome personal history, and will still probably be elected senator from Georgia. We will talk about that. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. Joe Biden's approval rating is 33%, which is lower, I think. It's a different different pollster, but lower than Trump's was at the end of his presidency. Uh, most Democrats say they want someone else to be their 2024 Democratic presidential nominee. Biden, who's already the oldest president, would be fantastically, unprecedentedly old if he were reelected and 86 when he finished a second term. Meanwhile, only 13% of Americans say the country is on the right track. And that poll was taken before this week's dismal inflation news. So, Mark, how much of what's going on with Biden do you think has to do with the general unpleasant unpleasantness of the country right now in the sense that almost everything is going in the wrong direction and how much of the dissatisfaction with him has to do with the fact that he has just done a kind of mediocre job and seems really old and is really old he is really old um you know i think a lot of it is the first i i think what is i mean here's a couple of unfortunate things about joe biden that he can't change one his age Um, but, but two, he's a guy who got elected and he peaked the day he got elected. He, the most important thing Joe Biden could have done is beat Donald Trump. That's why everyone in the, that that was the overriding reason he was chosen as the democratic nominee. He beat Donald Trump. He, you know, sort of landed the plane. He was there. He behaved like a grown up. He didn't tweet like a madman in the middle of the night. He was decent to people that sort of wore off with Afghanistan. So, um, and, and, you know, he's been in this spiral ever since. And, and one thing I don't agree with is that he is incapable of reversing this in any way. I, I think the second he says, I'm not running again, I was elected to restore order, to calm things down at the most divisive and deranged moment in, Amer- you know, in recent history. And my job is done. You know, we have big challenges. I want to turn it over to the next generation. I acknowledge that I'm going to be 80 in a few months. And, you know. 
I, I feel like, you know, it's time for new leadership. And I feel like, you know, I'm going to focus entirely in the next two and a half years on, you know, my job. And then wait, so do you think that's a realistic scenario? Either of you? Is he temperamentally capable of saying that? Joe Biden has always been very stubborn. Um, and on this point, he's also been very stubborn, which is that you're either on your way up in politics or you're on your way down. As soon as you signal that you're on your way down, you're a lame duck, people stop taking you seriously and you lose all your juice. Even when he was vice president to uh, President Obama and no one really thought that he would be you know, the president. Everyone thought that was sort of the emeritus role for old Joe Biden. Uh, he never ruled it out because he liked the idea that he could somehow be in play, even hypothetically, and people would look at him differently. I think it's a different scenario now. I don't think anyone, I, don't, I think a huge majority of the country and a good number of Democrats don't want him to run. I think it would immediately make him unthreatening. Um, I think it would just like completely change the air around him. And I think for the better. I think two challenges are one before the 2022 midterms, if he were to say this, to the extent that that race is a referendum on the president, he would be essentially accepting the negative referendum and would be validating the idea that um, he's been a disaster um, by saying that before the the midterms. Um, He would also rob the party to the extent it has any spokesperson for a national message. He would be replacing that with... Uh, you know, who the, who the hell's the spokesperson for the party, which you need if you're trying to get everybody on the same page, which is hard enough to do as a Democrat. So I think that's would be a challenge to do beforehand. And then, as Mark says, there's no evidence he would, would do that. Afterwards, it depends what the shape of the House and the Senate is. Immediately, you would kick off uh, another round of a fight that's already going on about who would then be the nominee. And everything that was said by anyone, from Elizabeth Warren to Bernie Sanders to uh, Pete Buttigieg to Kamala Harris, would be uh, sifted through that prism, um, which would be uh, chaos for Biden's agenda and his legacy, and also um, put him like way on the sidelines of national affairs, which would be just a very weird place to be um, for a sitting president. And he wouldn't stand for that. He would get itchy and it would be uh, chaos. John, you think there are these sort of uh, reasons having to do with the chaos that's unleashed that he would be reluctant to do it? You think temperamentally he's reluctant to do it. On the other hand, his party seems to want him not to run. There is a Absolutely. And it doesn't you don't have to be uh, a 22 year old to think that the Democratic Party is unreasonably dominated by incredibly old people. It's not, of course, just Biden. It's Nancy Pelosi. It's Clyburn. It's Hoyer. Like the, the top of the, the party leadership is absurdly old. And it would be great to sweep that out and get some newer blood in there. So is there any chance that he does what Mark is, a, Mark is saying is a possibility, or Mark is saying might be tactically wise. I'm, we're giving all the reasons why it would be bad for him to do it. I think, as I said on what, our live show, I think, he'd, I, I think he doesn't run again. I think that something has to change for the Democratic fortunes. I mean, I would say that, I mean, first of all, a Democratic president, whether he's running again or not, is going to be the spokesman for the party. I mean, it's just when you're the president of the United States, you do have that bully pulpit. And it's not like the bully pulpit is being used very powerfully now, you know, because he might be 
up for re-election. I mean, he he hasn't been a good spokesman for the party right now. He's a terrible cheerleader at this point. You know, maybe an earlier, younger version of Joe Biden might have been more effective. I, I don't know why this scenario has not been talked up more. And I'm also, I mean, the chaos of a of a you know not having a successor. I mean, that's called a primary. That's what happens. I mean, I mean, yeah, Kamala Harris is not, by no means a natural heir apparent at this point. But you know, it wouldn't be the worst thing to have Gavin Newsom and Stacey Abrams or AOC or Chris Murphy or Amy Klobuchar or whoever sort of actually people under. I assume they're all under at least sixty-five. Um, at least six. I mean, some, we're quite young. Just debating the future of of America, of the Democratic Party. I mean, I think just thinking about it makes me feel ten years younger. Um, so I don't know. I I don't think that would be unhealthy at this point. I think it would signal to America, to you know, independents, that this is a party that is not afraid of its future. I mean, the thing about Donald Trump is he's made Republicans very risk averse. They just walk around like they're waiting for like a big orange light fixture to fall on their head because you know the next tweet, the next statement, whatever. Democrats have also been made risk averse by Donald Trump because they're afraid of taking any kind of risk whatsoever with a new face. It's like, all right, Joe Biden scares the fewest number of people. He's seen as the most electable. Let's make him nominee in 2020. So you have this very caretakery, um, risk-averse president. And, you know, he did what he had to do. He got elected. And good for him. Unfortunately, you know, reality had to take over at a certain point. I mean, it's really hard to see how a Democratic Party that goes into 2024 with the same set of people at the top of it is headed for a victory, headed for retaking a House and Senate it loses in the midterms, is headed for, you know, a sweeping presidential victory over over Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump. It really, it's evident that they need new people. So, like, sooner the better. I want to close talking about the same poll had data about Republicans and Trump. And notably that half of Republicans want Trump to be their presidential nominee in 2024 and half don't. And of the half that don't most or, or half of them, so 25% overall, want Ron DeSantis as their nominee. When you saw those results, Mark, did you think, oh, wow, Trump is in a weak position or, oh, wow, Trump is in a strong position vis-a-vis his party? I think if you were to have a poll um, probably in 2015, um, you would have seen, you know, late 2015, you would have seen basically the same numbers, probably 40, 50 percent said, yeah, I'm a Trump person. And then the other 50 percent would be split among Jeb Bush and Rubio or Cruz, whatever. So, yeah, I mean, he still has his core. And and I don't buy I mean, it'd be one thing if Mike Pence, Ted Cruz, whoever else might run decided, you know what, I am going to subvert my ambition and my ego and throw in with Ron DeSantis because that's what I'm going to do because I think it's important that we stop Donald Trump. That's not going to happen. I mean, first of all, Ron DeSantis doesn't seem to have a lot of goodwill beyond like whatever, you know, very default polling, you know, power he seems to have. Um, But yeah, if he had the field to himself, maybe it would be a clean race, but I doubt he will. And and also, I'm not convinced DeSantis is going to scale well at all. I mean, people like Republicans who know him, who served with him in Congress, Republican governors. uh, I mean, he's a weird dude, not charismatic. You can imagine Trump just like absolutely caricaturing him in the most Trumpy ways possible. Um, He's not a sure thing to even get reelected in Florida. I mean, it's not like he's beloved down there. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't see that. And, and I'm not sure how informed people are about what kind of guy this guy is. I think you've put your finger on exactly the challenge. Um, can I, the only thing I would add is that to just affirm what Mark was saying, um, in this 
New York Times poll, uh, Trump loses to Biden, despite how bad things Biden are for, are for Biden in, the, in a head-to-head. But Trump's 49% in his party is actually five points higher than the 44% of the vote he got in the primaries in 2016. Now, he was a sitting president, so you would expect his number to be higher. But relative to, um, you know, this just affirms Mark's point, um, which is that he can have enough support in the party to get the nomination, and it doesn't have to be overwhelming. Slate Plus members, you get so much good stuff from Slate. You get member-exclusive episodes and segments from us and from other shows. You have no ads on any Slate podcasts. You get unlimited reading on the Slate site. And, of course, the enormous psychological satisfaction of knowing that you're supporting the work that Slate is doing. That is in itself priceless. And uh, today we have a bonus segment for Slate Plus members about Mark Leibovich's new book and how he reported it and how you go about reporting in Washington these days. How do you get people to talk to you in a time when there's so much mistrust of the media? People ought to know better than to talk to Mark Leibovich, and yet they do talk to Mark Leibovich. Uh, how do you go about doing that? Mark Leibovich, in addition to being a brilliant writer for The Atlantic and formerly The New York Times, is a writer of books and a chronicler in particular of Washington. His last book about D.C., this town, began with a funeral, and it was one of the funniest scenes in recent D.C. political writing. And the book itself was also very, very funny. This book, Mark's new book, Thank You for Your Servitude, begins in a hotel not at a funeral. And somehow that hotel is so much more grim and depressing than a funeral could be. Thank You for Your Servitude is a really dark sequel to this town. Mark's last book about D.C., which was about the peripheries of powerful Washington, the people who are just a few inches outside the inner circle who matter, but not as much as they want to matter. And Thank You for Your Servitude is also about that set of people. In this case, it's a story of people who were compromising themselves for Donald Trump and a few people who didn't compromise themselves for Donald Trump. Uh, the people who compromised like Lindsey Graham, like Kevin McCarthy, other denizens of the hotel that Mark writes about, the Trump Hotel, of course. So Mark, congratulations on Thank You for Your Servitude. It's a very funny book. It's a very dark book. I can't tell if it's the book that we need at this time or the book that we absolutely don't need at this time, but it's one or the other. So people should get it. I'm going to ask you, Mark, just to read a paragraph I sent you yesterday um, about who you're writing about. And thank you for your servitude. Better objects of our scrutiny and far more compelling to me are the slavishly devoted Republicans who Trump drew to his side. It's been said before, but can never be emphasized enough. Without the complicity of the Republican Party, Donald Trump would be just a glorified geriatric fox-watching golfer. I've interviewed scores of these collaborators trying to understand why they did what they did and how they could live with it. These were the McCarthys and the Grams and all the other busy parasitic suck-ups who made the Trump era work for them, who humored and indulged him all the way down to the last exhausted strains of American democracy. Mark, your colleague at The Atlantic and Applebaum has written really chillingly about collaborators in the context of dictatorships like Putin's Russia or quasi-dictatorships like Orban's Hungary. I'm not saying that Lindsey Graham is equivalent to to necessarily a, somebody who collaborates with Vladimir Putin. But why is it that so few people stand up and risk their careers for something they know to be wrong, which Lindsey Graham knows, which Kevin McCarthy knows, which Chris Christie knows? That to me is is the one of the central questions of our time. I mean, I think one of the reasons I wanted to focus on them is because if there was one undercovered aspect of the Trump story, 
Um, it's not Trump himself. It's not White House intrigue itself. It's not Trump voters themselves. I mean, much effort has gone into trying to understand the motivations of Trump voters and and trying to, you know, get the killer White House anecdote about Donald Trump, you know, feeding Mike Pence dog food or whatever it is. I, I, I wanted to understand the people in the middle, the, the putative leaders of the Republican Party and why they were sort of throwing in with him, even though they all knew better. And that was always a working title for me in my head. They all knew better because, you know, Lindsey Graham, Kevin McCarthy, uh, Republicans up and down privately have great contempt for the guy. They, they think he's as dangerous as many people do. Um, publicly, the level of slavish sort of sycophancy uh, just unctuousness is, is just off the charts. There's never been a bigger gap between what politicians will say publicly and privately, in my experience, than you know ever in in my experience covering this stuff. You know, their motivations obviously are, are different. A lot of it is sort of pure, good old fashioned opportunism. I need my job. I need to keep my job. I'm Lindsey Graham. I probably need my U.S. Senate seat more than any other U.S. senator. That's what one of his colleagues says. Um, I just need to be here. I need to be in the mix. I need to be at the dice table. Kevin McCarthy needs to be Speaker of the House. He has decided that all the indignity he has undergone over the last few years will all be redeemed if somehow Republicans can win the majority in November and he can be their leader. Uh, so those are two pretty naked calculations. Others, just it's just a path of least resistance. There's the factor of like physical fear and intimidation. I mean, a lot of people are just genuinely like physically afraid of the death threats they're getting, you know, their families are getting, you know, Donald Trump is not, not at all hesitant to summon the mob as we've seen quite literally. And that's a factor too, that I don't think should be um, underestimated here either. The thing I find uh, interesting are the different are the different categories. I think people w would have been less surprised that Kevin McCarthy did w all the things necessary to stay in line with Donald Trump and his supporters than they would have been Lindsey Graham, because Lindsey Graham had styled himself um, in the shadow of John McCain um, as an independent, tells it like it is. Um, the Republican Party's got to stop hitching its fortunes only to white men. So he both stylistically and and, um, and as a matter of policy was kind of um, pushing against the party and then obviously pushed against Trump when he was running. So for him to become one of not only Trump's enablers, but I mean, he got on the phone and called Brad Raffensperger after the election. I mean, he was an operative in the Trump effort to overthrow a free election as the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. So what is your thinking, Mark, about the distinction between those two? Because Kevin McCarthy never made a big deal about, I've got these independent morals and values that are sterling. But Lindsey Graham really did. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are gradations up and down the ladder. I mean, I, you know, I mentioned, you know, Paul Ryan to people. Um, Paul Ryan... You know, he disappointed a lot of people, certainly in the Trump world, when he was Speaker of the House for the first two years of, of Donald Trump's term. He certainly didn't win over anyone on the left. I mean, he was seen as basically a lapdog. He got his tax cuts, um, you know, and but he basically had had enough. I mean, Paul Ryan is someone I spent a fair amount of time with in 2018 um, and also a few months ago and was really, I mean, I thought kind of genuinely tortured by by this. And there's an anecdote in the book where a couple months ago, I visited him and he described for me what it was like to sort of be sitting at home watching the January 6th uh, riot kind of unfold on his TV and just bursting into tears 
Um, he's, you know, John Boehner's the crier. I'm not a crier, but there I was bursting into tears, like crying like a baby. And it was, I uh, said it was very emotional and, and I just couldn't believe it. And I saw my old security detail, like going mano a mano with, with these rioters. And, you know, it sounded very compelling. And, and finally I broke in, I said, you know, Mr. Speaker, I, I, this is, I completely, I mean, I, thank you for telling me this, but were any of these tears of complicity? I mean, did you ever think, you know, maybe I could have done more when I was speaker? Maybe I should speak louder now, and maybe I shouldn't be on the board of Fox News, because he continues to serve on the board of Fox News, you know, cash is a big paycheck. And, you know, he didn't want to go there. People make calculations, and it's never a clean, straight-ahead thing. But that's not to say I think Paul Ryan is duping me. I, I think... You know, I think his experience with Donald Trump was not pleasant. I spent enough time around him to know this. And, you know, Mitch McConnell, I think, probably doesn't get enough blame for letting Trump, you know, not. I mean, the the, the way uh, Mitch McConnell handled himself after January 6th, I think, is, you know, quite typically Mitch McConnell, but also quite insidious in that he very strongly said this is a terrible thing. Donald Trump is responsible for it. He privately was saying, let's impeach the guy. Uh, He's basically suggesting that he be indicted. Um, And then almost single-handedly orchestrated the impeachment so that, you know, well, we don't have time to to do this in two weeks. And of course they did. It's not like they need to make a case. They all lived through January 5th or 6th. And he said, nope, got to wait till after the inauguration. And so then his members didn't have to take that vote, even though I think the vote probably would have to be convicted if it were, you know, timely enough. And then after January 20th, they had their easy answer, which is, oh, he's a former president. What's the, why bother impeaching him? So, um, and then a couple of weeks later, McConnell's like, of course, I will support the nominee. And so, you know, cute Mitch McConnell doesn't get talked about a lot here. And, you know, McCarthy has to go down to Mar-a-Lago. But basically, this is why we're back here today with the Republican Party. He's been fully rehabilitated. And you could argue that thanks to Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy, that took a few weeks. So to me, I think they're extremely complicit. I, I think everyone's complicit. But I think there are gradations, obviously. I actually want to talk about the heroes because I one of the things that I think you get into well, and thank you for your servitude, are the several people who who are quite heroic. And I say this knowing that GabFest listeners don't think Mitt Romney is heroic. They don't think John McCain is heroic. They think John McCain is, you know, a, a conservative Republican. And they don't think Liz Cheney, daughter of, of uh, Dick Cheney, the Darth Vader of the Bush years, is is not. Is, is necessarily heroic. I guess that makes her Luke Skywalker, though, um, if she's Darth Vader's child. Liz Cheney's bravery during this January 6th commission and her, her willingness to stand up and, and just torpedo her own political career is extraordinary. What makes these people different, and how do you guys think we can mint more of them? My feeling on, on this is, you know... <sighs> I have such little patience for my liberal friends who you mentioned, I mean, you know, Liz Cheney inspires me. I think, you know, the idea that, first of all, I love the way the hearings are being conducted. I think the fact that she's placed her career on the line, basically lost a chance possibly to be Speaker of the House, you know, is probably going to lose her job over this, lost a ton of friends. Uh, is inspiring to me. I, I And then, you know, a lot of liberal friends will say, oh, well, but what about the Iraq war? What about, you know, 
Darth Vader's Halliburton racket. I mean, you know, it's just like, stop. I, I'm of the belief, especially in these precarious times, that it's never, ever too late to, to do the right thing and, you know, and then stand by it. I mean, her fortitude here has been impressive. And, and I do think, and I've thought a lot about this, who, who are the people who actually have the character to stand up like this? And uh, there are some categories. I mean, a lot of them are sort of family legacy people like, you know, Liz Cheney obviously comes from a like family of politicians, has a very strong sense of history and, and sort of the idea that a legacy is important. Mitt Romney, same thing. I mean, George Romney, his father, um, you know, was a kind of an iconoclastic Republican in his day, uh, you know, was against Nixon, very you know pioneer for civil civil rights and got in a lot of trouble in the Republican Party. Uh, even like Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland, his, his father, um, uh, I think his name was either Lawrence Hogan or Charles Hogan, I'm not sure. He was re- sort of a backbencher congressman from Maryland who was the first Republican out of nowhere to uh, support the articles of impeachment against Richard Nixon. And it cost him his job. Um, there was a big price to pay. And, you know, Larry Hogan has been, you know, a consistent Trump critic um, among Republicans. And then there's another category, which is people of faith. I mean, Mitt, Mitt Romney's in that category. Jeff Flake's in that category. Um, you know, Rusty Bowers, the, uh, the, the Arizona official who testified a few weeks ago, he talked a lot about his faith and, and how he couldn't lie and could not, couldn't, you know, wouldn't violate his oath and, um, and, you know, and combat veterans too. I mean, I think McCain's in that category, Adam Kinzinger. So, I mean, there are these classes of people who have seen larger forces at work and tend to see the world in terms of forces bigger than the day-to-day expediencies of pleasing Donald Trump and, you know, getting through their next election that that tend to be more prone to this. Unfortunately, you know, there just aren't that many of them. Mark Leibovich's book is Thank You for Your Servitude. It's out this week. It's really funny. It's just a great read as well as being dark and insightful. Congratulations, Mark. Thank you, David. Speaking of great reads... As GabFest listeners know, every month we're doing GabFest Reads, where we're doing a special episode where we're interviewing an author about a new book that uh, they have that we really like. And we have a new episode coming July 24th. Emily's interviewing Vanessa Waugh about Waugh's book, Forbidden City. So check out GabFest Reads, July 24th. Emily talking to Vanessa Waugh. Depending on which poll you look at, Herschel Walker, the Republican nominee for Senate in Georgia, is either running neck and neck with incumbent Raphael Warnock or somewhat behind him. Although, given how fast Herschel Walker could run in his prime, I would not be, I would not want to be neck and neck or behind or slightly ahead of Herschel Walker. He would definitely run you down. There is a very strong chance that Walker, who was a brilliant football player, but one who has a history of erratic behavior, of threats towards women, a person who has no apparent interest in public policy or knowledge of anything, a moral hypocrite, but he has a fighting chance of being the first black Republican elected to the Senate in Georgia. John, why is the Republican Party, did they nominate someone so obviously troubled, ignorant, and unqualified? And was it just pure cynicism to pick off a few black voters who would vote for a black Republican sports star, and they didn't worry that he's totally unsuited to the job? I think it's a collection of ideas. Um, The star power works in politics and, um, and Herschel Walker is uh, uh, close to Donald Trump, which is helpful in politics. Although in Georgia politics, there's a totally different argument, but he doesn't, he doesn't run afoul really of the problem Donald Trump has in Georgia, which is his fight with the governor uh, and the secretary of state there. But it was not a messy primary. He's a star in the state. 
Uh, and so you would have picked him anyway, leaving um, because star power matters. Um, also, the huge headwinds, Biden's approval rating in Georgia is at like 34 um, percent. So with a lot of headwinds, you you imagine a candidate who's not so good would probably win in Georgia anyway. Popular governor, a Republican governor uh, among Republicans. So there are all kinds of reasons that that he should win. It's um, the latest Atlanta Journal Constitution poll has Warnock up by a few points and polling over 50 percent. Walker's negatives are, I think, at 49 percent, 41 positive, 49 negative. So and Warnock's at 49, 49. So what's interesting about that to me is that Walker is bad enough that he is and 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 maybe Warnock is good enough, but um, that they've disconnected from the national environment, which is bad. Joe Biden, I should say, in that same poll, Kemp is up seven points over Stacey Abrams. So there's a voters are making some conclusion right now, at least based on that one poll. And the Quinnipiac poll had Walker up, I mean, Walker down by 10 points. It seems like voters in Georgia right now, at least what they're telling pollsters, is they're making a distinct decision about how bad a candidate Herschel Walker is. In 2010, Mark, Republicans had a great environment. They're running against uh, Obama, who, 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 who'd lost a lot of his sheen from 2008. It was a midterm election, lots of vulnerable Democrats open. And they, they nominated some really crazy people. They nominated Christine O'Donnell in Delaware. They nominated Todd legitimate rape Aiken in Missouri. Have they done the same overreach here with Walker and maybe with other folks, maybe with like a Dr. Oz or, or other folks who are running? The Democrats best hope of keeping the Senate is basically Trump coughing up a few seats for them. And, and you know, Herschel Walker was Trump's idea. There's no question about it. Like, they're old friends. And he, you know, no no one recognizes or appreciates star power like Donald Trump. And, you know, Herschel Walker played for the New Jersey Generals. They have personal history. Um, so, and, you know, Georgia. I mean, you know, he's a legit, you know, icon, sports icon in, in Georgia. So, you know, and then you put him actually into a campaign and all of his personality defects and, you know, uh, you know, just a lot of you know, just the fact that he's clearly not ready for prime time uh, or politics or even cares about it um, just sort of makes itself so evident. George is a classic seat that, that Republicans should win that they very well might not win. Uh, Pennsylvania, same thing. I mean, Dr. Oz uh, off to a really bad start. Again, completely Trump's idea. Uh, Trump got him elected. And so those are two seats right there that that could be decisive and there could be more. I mean, I think Ohio, I mean, uh, J.D. Vance has, you know, been more innocuous, obviously, than 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 Dr. Oz. And also Ohio is a tougher state for Democrats. But Tim Ryan's a pretty strong candidate for Democrats. And we'll see. But I mean, look, I mean, Trump, I mean, Mitch McConnell and Trump are not um, at the same purposes here. And, and clearly, Herschel Walker and Dr. Oz would not be, or Eric Greitens, for that matter, would not be handpicked McConnell uh, candidates for these races. So uh, that could be the deciding factor in the Senate. And McConnell had said that he banished the 2010 problem, um, which which he clearly hasn't. Um, and uh, and we should remind people who don't know that all Democrats, all Republicans have to do is net one seat um, and they control the Senate. Um, but now they're facing, you know, Pennsylvania is a Republican seat that could go uh, the wrong way if Dr. Oz is a disaster. Arizona and Georgia were the two pickup opportunities. If Walker 
is a disaster in Georgia. They lose the opportunity of taking that seat, which should have been pretty easy to pick up. Um, In Arizona, where we have an August 2nd um, primary, Blake Masters, who's running to unseat Mark Kelly, um, who was one of the founders, or or I guess he helps run Thiel Capital, um, thinks Trump won in 2020 um, and has lots of other... uh, modeled things in his um in his background so that's another opportunity that might not work out for republicans so then it comes down to basically um picking up a seat in uh in nevada or taking one out of um out of new hampshire and those are you know that might be uh that might be harder the candidates there are not so are not so great either so um it should be within the Senate grasp and it's, it's looking like it not, it's not. And by the way, Missouri should be a solid Republican hold. Um, and Greitens is, you know, causing some destabilization there. Yeah. Also, by the way, Wisconsin is a potential pickup for Democrats. Uh, Ron Johnson, I mean, is in a, I mean, they're about 50, they're, they're neck and neck, whoever the Democrat is, depends who they nominate, but yeah, that's a potential cushion seat for, uh, for Democrats. Right. We'll see that August 9th is the, uh, is when the Democrats will figure out who they go up against uh, Johnson. So Trump, serial sexual offender, tax cheat, liar. It felt like, okay, now there's no longer any bar for bad behavior in public life. Like you can, he, he was, he was as bad as you can be. He's almost literally like, you know, top five worst people in America, uh, Donald Trump by, by some measures. Uh, also traitor, you know, willing to foment a coup against against the Constitution of the United States, et cetera, et cetera. It does character still matter. And is that what's going on with Walker or some, is it something else? It's an interesting, it's a really interesting question. I think it doesn't matter when other things are at stake. Um, and which is one of the reasons why it's necessary for parties to keep uh, the apocalyptic thinking going. And particularly for the Republican Party, when they're saddled with Donald Trump, you don't defend Donald Trump. You just talk about the apocalyptic things that will happen if the Democrats take power. Um, and so uh, so character, does it matter? I think that the same Republican women who stayed home in Georgia, which, by the way, it had Georgia, we should remind everyone, had the thinnest presidential margin in 2020. Biden won by 0.2 points. Um, so uh, and and Warnock won by two percentage points. They were on different election days. But um, it's a absolutely tight place and the women who stayed home and didn't vote for donald trump i can guess i haven't looked inside that atlanta journal constitution poll and obviously say it again any individual one poll or polling this far from november um you know has to be looked at for sort of vague signals but nothing more specific than that but that would be my guess the real what interests me is the republicans who are voting yes on warnock and no on abrams um who are they and does that answer your question? Uh, and it may very well answer your question, the affirmative about character. So there's a f- story in the New York Times a few days ago about the Latino women who are running as pretty MAGA Republicans in Texas and taking advantage of a clear movement of Hispanics out of the Democratic Party, recognizing there's a strong core of conservatism with a strong evangelical flavor as well in Hispanic America. Trump revealed it, and these women are running and are probably going to do pretty well in congressional races and mostly in South Texas. Should we expect something similar in black America? Walker is a clearly unfit candidate, but he holds views 
that probably lots of other people have about his socially conservative view. There are a lot of other black Americans who probably hold this view, but there aren't a lot of black candidates in the Republican Party historically. Are we on the cusp of a shift in the way that we seem to be on a cusp of a shift of that for for Hispanic America? I mean, it's entirely it's entirely possible. I mean, look, I, I think the the bleeding of Hispanic votes for Democrats um Complete disaster for Democrats. Um, you know, they, they've been banking on Latinos as, as like the core of their coalition, you know, not just in the present, but but in the future. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, it doesn't, I wouldn't surprise me at all if that happened among African-Americans. I mean, it's so deeply weird that the whole Republican, the whole post, what was it, 2012 Republican plan, we have to, you know, get soft on these issues and then we'll attract Hispanic and black voters, and that's essential for the future of the party. They didn't, they did exactly the opposite. And now they are attracting the Hispanic and potentially the black voters who, who weren't interested in them, uh, without, without that, I don't know what that authoritarian ethos that, that Trump has brought to it. And it was Trump who rightly called that about the, the 2012 aut- autopsy saying that if Republicans actually followed what Reince Priebus and the Republican party had um, diagnosed its problems, it, it would destroy the party. He didn't follow that and he became the nominee. Um, we should, man- one other thing I'd just like to add about this demographic issue is that um, also the electorate that's going to be important in the off year elections, um, suburban districts make up a lot of these races that are going to be key in determining who has control of the House and the Senate. Um, that will be different than the kind of electorate that participates in presidential years. So a lot of us, including me, will make sloppy comments about like what the Republican coalition is and what the Democratic coalition is. And oftentimes I'll be talking about two totally separate different kinds of elections. So um, I'm just apologizing in advance for that. Let's go to cocktail chatter. John, when you're done apologizing and you've started drinking and and talking about some random bits of ephemera that have flown through the neurons of the Dickerson brain, what will come out of your mouth? What will that chatter be? My chatter is a wonderful um, thing that the New York Times did um, from the 2021-2022 school year, 168 writing prompts to spark discussion and reflection. And it's basically um, something the Times did each day of the school year, published in the student opinion uh, section, a question. And it asked students to to offer their own questions. It's essentially, um, the questions are essentially, you know, the kind we ask in our conundrum show. So um, should there be a minimum voting age? If two songs sound alike, is it stealing? Should libraries get rid of late fees? Is it ethical to be a football fan? When should you tip? Do you think we need to change the way math is taught? Anyway, they're, incre- they're great questions. They totally prompt wonderful um different kinds of discussion. And um, the, the Times has them all listed on one page and the articles that led to them um, and, the, and the responses that came in. And I think basically every newspaper should do this in their communities. That sounds awesome. Also, John, I want to hat tip your chatter from last week, the How Normal Am I chatter you did. I just went and did the How Normal Am I. It was fascinating. It was absolutely fascinating. Mark, what is your chatter? So I'm in Boston now, and I grew up here. And um, I remember 
in the 80s, I was a busboy at TJI Fridays on Newberry Street. And it just so happens I'm at a hotel uh, that is near Newberry Street. And I took a little walk to Starbucks this morning. And I was remembering, and I went by the old uh, TJI Fridays, no longer a TJI Fridays. But I was thinking, huh, wouldn't it be cool to be like, you know, 20-year-old me again, knowing what I know now, walking down this street? And if I could come back to be 20 years old again, or however old I was, uh, yeah, 20 years old, and know what I know now, then what technological advances from now would I bring back with me if I could bring three uh, or anything like uh, anti-smoking laws or public smoking laws? Because, you know, in, in the 80s, you, know, you could pretty much smoke anywhere, relatively speaking, medications, cell phones, um, you know, laws, norms, Internet, whatever. And I was thinking, you know, what would I bring with me? Would I bring a phone with me? Or would I be happy to be 1985 Mark walking around with all of the incredible sophistication I've gained over the last, you know, 30, whatever, however many years or 40 almost years? Um, would I want a phone or not? And who could um, you call? Also, there's no Internet to connect to. It would be pointless. Well, that's the question. Know. Do other people have it or not? <sighs> oh, that's a great question. No, it'd be all or nothing. Would, would we want phones or would we not? I'm sort of naturally nostalgic. <clears throat> um, and, you know, maybe it was simpler. Maybe, you know, uh, I'd be watching the baseball game more closely. I, I don't know. I, I think I decided that I probably would want the phone, actually. I don't see that the phone materially contributes to my happiness. It is what employs me, I suppose. But I'm sure I would just do something else that would employ me uh, without a phone. May I? So interject that while we're going down memory lane here and given um mark's uh lineage did you did you know that basically i think one of the first podcasts was launched by the new england patriots in august of 2000 they did a show called pfw in progress and it was a live show that was recorded and you could get it on demand at patriots.com um, so I don't know if that technically counts as a podcast, but I, wow. I think that it was one of the first, you know, or advised for some space in the, in the beginning of this, of this form. Um, I think. It, interestingly, that's the year, that's the year Tom Brady was drafted. So everyone sort of credits him for turning the fortunes of the Patriots around after years of ineptitude, but maybe it was the podcast. My chatter is something I read about in CityCast DC, the newsletter that uh, CityCast is doing in Washington, DC, my hometown, which is great. You should go to dc.citycast.fm to subscribe to it. It's so good. And to listen to our podcast, which is also so good. Anyway, um, it's about Shutdown DC, which is a liberal advocacy group, which is now offering a bounty for service industry workers who spot Supreme Court justices in the wild and report them and 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 inform on their whereabouts. Not just all Supreme Court justices, the ones who voted uh, for Dobbs voted to overturn Roe. And so it's you can get up to $250 if you tell shutdown that, oh, uh, Justice Barrett has been spotted at the anthropology in Georgetown. Um, and, and then I guess the idea is that people will then gather and harass and protest against Justice Barrett, who is at the Anthropology in Georgetown. Um, and this comes after, of course, Brett Kavanaugh had a dinner at Morton's here in Washington that was disrupted, although I don't think that Kavanaugh even saw the protesters, but he was hustled out of the restaurant before he did. Um, 
by protesters who were unhappy that he was there. I don't think I like this idea. I don't think that public intimidation of public officials is a good idea. We've seen it with public health officials um, who were trying to enforce mask mandates and and uh, change public health in in cities, and they got harassed. We've seen it with school officials who've been really taking a beating over over certain issues. It's, there's a I hate this idea. Yeah, I mean, it's, of course, it's nice for Brett Kavanaugh to know that his decision is not welcome, that people don't appreciate his decisions and that they disapprove of his decisions. But is it really that that sort of that there is no place to be a person, no place to be a human being, uh, no place to, to just to live and and interact and not be political and not be your Supreme Court justice self and just coach a Little League game or have a dinner? Um I hate the politicization of every aspect of life, and this seems like part of it. But I'm interested in – Mark, sounds like you also don't like this form of intimidation. Yeah, no. I mean, I think it's such a slippery slope, and, and basically, um, you know, pretty much every public official will do things that, that a large proportion or a significant proportion of the population will have strong, you know, perhaps moral objections to. And you know, why should it stop here? I mean, uh, Congressman so-and-so voted against Bill 724, which, you know, this large group of people is very passionate about. Therefore, let's do a little search function where we can tell everyone where Congressman so-and-so is. And, you know, all of the similarly passionate people are, you know, you know, are encouraged to go harass this person. I, I don't know. I think it's an incredibly slippery slope. Um and, you know, I certainly understand the frustration and the anger directed at, at the court, especially after Roe. But I, um, yeah, I, I would prefer that a, a harassment model um, not, no, not, be, not be something that people pursue. Listeners, you have harassed us with great chatters. You have tweeted them to us at at SlateGabFest. You've emailed them to us at GabFest at Slate.com. Something that you're delighted by, you're horrified by, something you've read, something you've seen, something you've listened to. And this week's listener chatter comes from Josie Beyer. Hi, Political Gabfest. The last few weeks, I have been chattering a lot about a group of four women currently in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. They are rowing from San Francisco to Hawaii, trying to break the world record. They left for their trip on June 21st, and it is expected to take them around five weeks. They have no support boat and carry all of their food and supplies with them. There are always two people rowing at a time, and they row in two-hour shifts. Whenever they are not rowing, they are taking care of all of their or the boat's other needs. This can include eating, sleeping, navigating, scraping barnacles off the side of the boat, etc. To see pictures or get more information, you can follow their journey on Instagram at lat35racing. That's L-A-T-3-5-R-A-C-I-N-G. With all of the tough news lately, it has been a really nice break to follow these amazing women. Honestly, I think I'd rather be on Twitter all day than have to row from San Francisco to Hawaii. That terrifies me. It absolutely terrifies me. It's true. Me. It's Open hard to ocean. put together more things. I guess if the Terrifying. boat were filled with spiders. Small boat. Mm. Yeah. No but that, that only suggests how much cooler than they, they are than me, frankly. I mean, I think it's really cool they're doing it. It's really cool. They're so brave. And it's incredible. Incredible physical feat. And brave and i i just i'm so scared of ocean i'm so scared of the ocean i would not i couldn't do it it's amazing to i mean also the the it just turns the idea that like going to hawaii is the most restful thing in the world for one to do it's like i cannot think of a more opposite ocean than this 
That is our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio at Slate. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @slategapfest and tweet your chatter to us there. For Mark Leibovich and his wonderful book, thank you for your servitude. And John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? One of the interesting things that Mark Leibovich does is he makes really smart people um, sometimes look quite ridiculous. He's done it for years. He's reported on DC politics for a really long time. And for years, decades, nay, people have been talking to Mark. And and I don't know why some of them do it. I'm not sure why Lindsey Graham or Kevin McCarthy or Chris Christie or Rudy Giuliani uh, talk to somebody like Mark and how he gets them to talk. Because honestly, it just doesn't I mean, there's so much suspicion of media these days, um, especially among Republicans. And and I'm just curious about the process of doing a book like this and about how Washington reporting has changed in the decades that Mark and John have been doing it. So, um, Mark, how did you report this book about uh, about the Trump, these Trump uh, enablers? Did you just sit in the Trump hotel? Was that the entirety of your reporting? No, I mean, I did, I, that was not the entirety of the reporting. But yeah, a lot of a lot of reporting is just hanging around and um, you know making yourself, you know, creating your own breaks just by sort of showing up and and being opportunistic. But that's you know that's journalism school stuff. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, it's it's important to sort of acknowledge you know built in you know advantages you have when you work for a large media institution like the New York times or, um, you know, CBS in John's case, or, you know, it, it, it's, you know, people, you, know, you have an affiliation. I mean, I never thought that politicians were talking to me because I worked for the New York times or the Washington post or the Atlantic or whoever it's, they're talking to an institution and they're ultimately wanting to reach the public in some way. So it's not that I'm the most charming person in the world and they just can't resist them and, and have to talk to me. Although I mean, you guys know me, I mean, clearly that's a factor here, but um, no. So, I mean, you're part of a media institution, so that makes you sort of inherently more, you know, how it gives you more cachet. Um, and, and a lot of it is also with politicians. I mean, these, they're public officials. They have to come out in public. I mean, when you're Lindsey Graham, when you're Kevin McCarthy, when you're, you know, Chuck Schumer or whoever, you're going to walk the halls and you do your little press availabilities and, you know, you can be pulled aside and you can, people can ask questions. So it's not like you are a, a hermit, you come out in public, but, but ultimately it, it's not, I don't, you know, it's not like people go before Mark and they act ridiculous or do I, you know, go out of my way to make people look ridiculous unless it's over the top. I mean, there are ways as a reporter to draw people out and, you know, part of it is just figuring out what the right questions are. Part of it is just listening and, and sort of being able to, or being willing to think on your feet and knowing that if an interview is going a certain way, don't be a slave to the list of questions you have in your hands. Like, okay, I got to get to question three and I have to hit this and hit this. I mean, if the person goes in a sort of provocative or interesting or, or sort of quizzical direction, you know, trust your instincts enough to sort of ask a really quick follow-up question. Like, what do you mean? Really? Why do you, why do you keep saying that? And then 
you know, if you're taping it and you should, I mean, I try to tape everything, listen for patterns. Like when I interviewed, I spent a lot of time with Kevin McCarthy last year. And as usual, people said, why did he talk to you? Why did he spend so much time with you? And that, that's sort of a mystery actually to me, but he, you know, he let me, I was in Indiana with him. We were in Fort Wayne and, and I was writing a story on him. He said, yeah, why don't you come to Iowa? I'm doing an event in Davenport. So I, figured, okay, I'll switch my flight. And I, I drove to Davenport, which is like six hours away. And uh, then he said, well, I'm going home to Bakersfield, California, to do a little R&R this weekend. You really need to see Bakersfield because I heard you heard about Luigi's. Luigi's is this great Italian deli in Bakersfield that someone had told me about. And one great way to ingratiate yourself to politicians is through a iconic food place in a place that is familiar to them. And I said, I'm dying to see Luigi's. He goes, I'm going to go into Luigi's tomorrow. I'll take you. And, you know, I didn't plan to fly out to Bakersfield, but, you know, I said, all right, well, that's cool. So, you know, I'm lucky to have a, you know, well-funded institution behind me that could, you know, help me get a flight to Bakersfield or LA as it were. And then there's me and Kevin McCarthy eating, um, actually, you know what? I was late because I lost my cell phone, which is a whole other story. So I missed the Luigi's windows. We said, but I'm going to take you to Forgatti's for dinner, which is an Italian place. And then he said, I'm going to take you to Duars for ice cream because we used to go here for foot, uh, for milkshakes on Monday night after football practice. And I always got the Georgia special and you have to do that. I mean, you know, so he gets all nostalgic and I, you know, it's kind of interesting. And all of a sudden you're along for the ride and you got plenty of material. And I realized that like when I'm listening to these tape, the tapes of these conversations, He's every time Donald Trump's name came up, he, he just completely clammed up. And it was like a big orange light fixture was about to fall on his head. And, you know, OK, oh, that's a tell. That's a pattern. You know, he gets he freaked out. He's so terrified of like saying the wrong thing that's going to piss off Donald Trump. Um, you know, I mean, to me, and that's a data point. And that's something to sort of mine and, and sort of ask him about. And I don't know. I mean, I, I really there's just no plan to it. You just sort of have to trust your instincts. And I think being there and listening and then just asking the person you're interviewing to follow through on the lo logical conclusion of what they're saying is what you did so well with your exit interview with Paul Ryan, where essentially you got him to say, look, here are all the things that I kept from happening as he looked back on his time during the Trump era. And the picture that emerged was um, a highly ambitious, driven politician who had a huge to-do list, nevertheless, at the end of his career, identifying it not by what he had done, but what he kept from happening. Um, and that in itself was really interesting, but in a more broad sense, that switch that Donald Trump had changed the, you know, it's like having a compass, that he had changed true north so emphatically that um, that the, the needle was spinning in this crazy direction, you know, is, an, is, an, is the art of patience, attention, um, and, and it's really just listening and knowing how to go where it, where it goes. And that's, um, you know, Mark has a, a real skill for that. Mark, who didn't talk to you that you wanted to talk to? I'm actually, you mentioned at the top, Rudy Giuliani. He he never talked to me. I didn't, you know, I didn't try very hard. I think I put a, left him a few messages. Um, so, yeah, but I, I also feel like I have plenty of information on what Rudy's about and what he would have said. And, you know, I think his his uh, evolution, his trajectory, his spiral, whatever you want to call it, has taken place in, in full public view. But um, McConnell is another one. I, I didn't really, I mean, other than a couple of um, 
getting a couple of zombie walks past me in the, on the hill a few times. Um, I never really sat down with, with Mitch McConnell, um, yeah, which is too bad, but whatever. I, I had a pretty high hit rate otherwise. Have you heard from Graham or McCarthy since the book came out? And do you think they will talk to you again? Not since the book came out. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I honestly don't know. I mean, both those guys kind of can't help themselves. I mean, they're very, they're, they're extroverted. They're personable. They're, they are, they have incredibly high faith in their own ability to charm. Um, and, and look, objectively, I mean, Graham, especially very, you know, very fun guy to be around. I mean, he's, he's hilarious. He's pretty smart. He's pretty nimble. Um, you know, he's just more, um, you know, maybe more, more transparent than, than he thinks he is. I mean, that was sort of one of the weird things about Trump. I mean, he was, can be weirdly forthcoming about how full of shit he is. Um, and, and I think that's one of the reasons a lot of his supporters say, you know, I see authenticity there. I mean, he's, he speaks me, he's a truth teller. And, you know, you always sort of, you know, say, well, how can you say that? He's been caught in eight zillion lies over the last five years, right? Two things that brings to mind, Mark, riff on the being in on the joke, because there is and there used to be this um, weird kind of space that reporters and their subjects operated in, which, as you quite rightly pointed out, is a pernicious and awful space. A reporter can use that space quite effectively um, to get actual useful information. You just can't live in that space. Um, so to, a little bit about that, where some of these people think everybody's in on the joke. Um, then the second thing I wanted to know is people used to say about Bill Clinton that his you know, great trait as a politician, but also what was useful for reporters was he always, if there was one person in the room he hadn't convinced, he worked really hard to convince that person to like him. And I wonder if you see that in these politicians, because at some level, some of them don't care if people think they are lick spittles. So they have incredibly thick skin. And yet they also have this other part of them that really wants to convince you that they're that they're great, wonderful, insightful people who really have got the world figured out. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. And uh, Trump was pretty transparent about that, too, by the way. I mean, I, I spent like three solid weeks with him in late 2015. And I wrote a profile uh, on him for the Times Magazine. And he hated it, um, didn't like it at all. Uh, thought I was nasty, whatever it was. He was mostly upset about the art because they had a great photo of him, but they ran a cartoon on the cover. And I think he called a complaint. Um, but, you know, I would see him during the primaries afterwards and he'd say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to win you over. Like, you know, he would, he would say, you treated me very unfairly. You know, your newspaper is very nasty to me, but I'm going to win you over. And, you know, it was, uh, it was good for business in some ways because it, you know, meant implicitly, at least then that the relationship was open and, you know, the, I, I would maybe get another chance to talk to him. And, and I did the idea of getting the joke, right? I mean, that is a old Washington expression of like an unspoken truth. Like we all know what we're talking about here, but it would be unwise to acknowledge it on the record. Um, and in Republican Washington over the last five or six years, the joke among Republicans was this guy clearly is unfit to be president. Donald Trump is unfit to be president. And, uh, you know, at worst, he's he's a dangerous, you know, potential criminal, and and but we can't speak of that. So therefore, in public, we must talk about our reverence for him, and that sort of was the the form that the joke took during the Trump years. And um, I don't know. I mean, it was it was really really weird. But um, 
Look, I mean, the idea is, I mean, there is always sort of a race among journalists in Washington to sound more knowing and more authoritative than the next person. Um, I usually take the opposite approach, which is, you know, don't be afraid to ask the stupid question or the more, you know, I don't like knowingness. Knowingness is, to me, off-putting. It might make you seem cool to the politician and it might make you seem you know, like you're fitting in and you belong, but you know, I, I sort of wear my imposter syndrome a little bit more on my sleeve, um, because I think it's healthy and it makes people more, um, more willing to open up to you perhaps. So Kevin McCarthy's bragging on all these Bakersfield food places. Are they actually good? Hmm. Yeah, actually they were really, Luigi's is really good. I, really? I went back. Yeah. Really? They, they, I, you know, you, everyone, Every, if there's anyone in Bakersfield or near Bakersfield or if anyone's ever going through Bakersfield, I, I highly recommend Luigi's as a Italian deli and Duar's ice cream. And Frugati's was good too, uh, but Duar's was really good. And they have these great sort of uh, Mary Jane-like fruit chews. And um, that's the other thing. So I wrote this piece on McCarthy for the New York Times. He didn't like it. Um, and I happened to be going through Bakersfield uh, for something. I was driving in through California for some reason. Stopped at Duars, Duars, I guess it's called. No, Duars, bought some chews, uh, some Duars chews. Everyone should get some like Charleston chew or things like they have there. You know, more like, you know, Mary Jane's, bit of honey, whatever. And I, you know, had them sent over to the Capitol. So I was one of those people who sent a gift to a politician. Uh, you know, it only cost like $4. So I wasn't like violating the $10 gift limit that the New York Times set or whatever it was. And, um, you know, McCarthy, who, did not like the story I'd written about him a couple months earlier was, was pleased. And, you know, food is always happy candy, a pleasing childhood treat. And, um, you know, so if I ever see him around, um, can't imagine he's happy with this book, but you know, there's a pretty decent chance Duars will be mentioned. That reminds me, Mark, I have a box of maple candy mm. for you and your family. Oh, thank family. you so much. Wow. So I will, you know, I, I'm see. I'm ever grateful. You can never ever overdo it with childhood-like treats. All right. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Bye, Slate Plus.